Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the albumreview.net podcast. I'm Greg Potters. Thanks to all you listeners out there for your interaction and feedback. Your feedback is much appreciated and it helps me to always improve. On today's episode, I'm going to go through the formation and eventual events that led to the recording of their first album, the self-titled debut album from Rage Against the Machine. After listening to them for a few seconds, there's no secret. These guys had something to say in their music. So get ready to have your head put in a vice like Nikki does to Anthony and Goodfellas. Ah, rest in peace, Ray Liotta. Okay, remember, you can read my reviews and listen to any of my podcast episodes by going to albumreview.net. These episodes can also be heard wherever podcasts are available. Please follow my podcast on your preferred platform so you can get regular updates on new episodes. Also, if you guys would be so kind as to pop a quick review or rate the podcast, that helps move the needle and get the word out there. Join the mailing list as well so you can be first on reviews. It's all there. In addition to listening, you can read over 45 written reviews at albumreview.net and pick up some merchandise from your favorite bands, such as trucker hats, t-shirts, several of your favorite albums, home sound systems, and books that I've read and highly recommend. I have self-help books for inspiration, books from authors that I've had on the show, and I've got several biographies in there that you can pick from, such as Tom Petty, Guns N' Roses, Fake No More, Rush, Pink Floyd, Aerosmith, and many, many others. Now, Brand new to the albumreview.net website, I'm grateful to have some sponsors on the podcast now. And so in connection to this, I've created the tools and resources page. This is a list of the tools and resources I recommend to you guys to help achieve your goals. That It's not just one product to one specific goal, but really a, a, what I like to call a library of products to help you. Some of these products, they do have an affiliate tied to them. Some of these are helpful articles, books, and information that I just want to share. So check them out at the tools and resources page at albumreview.net and enjoy. Okay, you ready? Well, to quote a song off the album, wake up if you're not already and enjoy my next album review of Rage Against the Machine's self-titled debut album coming at you now. I want you to try and recall a time when you went to a concert to see one band and were mystified by either the opening act or another band on the bill to the point where you you feel this other act dominated the show and upstaged everyone else. Some of the most exciting moments in a concert experience is when you, I think, become stupefied by the band you weren't expecting to like or even knew nothing about. Well, this is what happened to me in July of 1993 when I saw Rage Against the Machine at the Lollapalooza Festival. On my previous episode, I discussed an album by Alice in Chains and mentioned I saw them on the same day as I saw Rage. And even though Alice blew my mind, Rage had a, they kind of had a different effect on me because I had never heard of them before. I've been in a heavy jazz phase for the last several years. Jazz just, it really relaxes me, but... What I also love is when listening to Rage Against the Machine, which is the furthest thing from jazz, I begin to channel my inner let's break stuff mode. Look out. 
And all you readers and listeners out there, what's great about Rage is how they mesh hip-hop, rap, rock, funk, and metal together. Lead singer Zach De La Rocha is hard to ignore and a true force in getting you to notice this band, I think. Formed in Los Angeles in 1991, Zach De La Rocha and bass player Tim Comerford were friends with a North Carolina-born Christian rock drummer, John Knox. Christian rock? Resurrected. I always think of Seinfeld when I, when I hear that. John Knox also moonlighted in traditional non-Christian rock bands, one of them being a heavy metal glam band named Lockup. Lockup was active from 1987 to 1990, and they, they disbanded after releasing just one album on Geffen Records. And upon their breakup, John Knox and Lockup's guitar player, this guy named Tom Morello, they remained friends, and they continued to stay in touch and jam together from time to time. So when, not if, but when Rage makes it into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Knox should be up there on stage with them accepting recognition because it was it was Knox that remembered a drummer Lockup had previously auditioned named Brad Wilk and had been turned down. Knox recommended to his friend and former bandmate Morello to check out Wilk's drumming and consider jamming with Brad. As Tom Morello was clear, he was moving forward to start a new band. Out of this communication, I found... Also, be, also came a recommendation from John Knox to Morello to check out lead singer Zach De La Rocha and bassist Tim Comerford. Morello contacted Zach, Tim, and Brad, and the four planned a, a jam together. So with Morello's unique guitar sound, really sounding like a DJ scratching a record, Comerford's thumping bass that could be the lead instrument in any song Brad Wilkes' jazz and metal-influenced drumming, and De La Rocha's aggressive yell, the group realized really quickly that they had a distinctive sound. So as the four guys continued to jam, they worked on developing their first demo tape. They later named their band Rage Against the Machine, which was the name of a song Zach wrote for his former band Inside Out. Based on their matching revolutionary and political views, the name was a perfect fit for the guys, giving their listeners an unadulterated description of what type of music they were going to hear. Rage's first public performance was on October 23rd, 1991. Less than two years later, they would be crushing the Lollapalooza tour. Unbelievable to think. But I watched a recording of their first show ever. It was on YouTube. And just like at the show I attended, you notice at the beginning... The audience is kind of preoccupied, walking around, you know, leaving, going for a concession break and chatting with their friends. But what's cool about this, not only seeing the music, but a few minutes in, it's like there's a magnet on the stage and people, it took place on the, the Cal State Northridge College campus. They're just being pulled in. You see every audience member just stop and watch. It's so cool. Even though it was their first ever live performance, even if you watch this, you guys, you can see how much of a powerful presentation it was. So not long after their first performance, it was almost that easy. The band had multiple offers from recording companies and elected to go with uh, Epic Records. Epic agreed to essentially everything the band asked for and enabled them to retain creative control, which was huge for Rage. 
In April and May of 1992, the band entered Sound City Studios in Van Nuys, California to record their very first album, simply titled Rage Against the Machine. They ended up re-recording seven of the 12 songs that were on their original demo that they used to sell at shows on cassette tapes for like five bucks a pop. And with musical influences such as Fugazi, Minor Threat, Bad Brains, Van Halen, mostly Eddie's influence on Tom there, The Dead Kennedys, and Faith No More. You picking up on this uh, vibe, vibe yet? Again, Rage was onto something with all these influences. They had a sound that was unique to the times. Now, Sound City was a famed studio in Van Nuys. You may have heard about it or seen it in Dave Grohl's 2013 documentary. I think it was called Sound City. It, it covered the history of all the incredible albums recorded there over the years. So other albums that were recorded at this studio included Fleetwood Mac's self-titled debut, Nirvana's Nevermind, Tool's Undertow, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers' Damn the Torpedoes, and Tom Petty's solo album Wildflowers, which is arguably my favorite album of all time, at least in my top 20 for sure. Uh, Neil Young's After the Gold Rush and like hundreds more. You got to check that out. Sound City when you get a chance. So produced by Garth Richardson, or better known as Gigi Garth, as most called him, Rage's self-titled debut album was released on November 3rd, 1992 by Epic Records. In what would later be deemed as in typical Rage Against the Machine fashion, the album's cover featured the famous photograph of Buddhist monk Thich Khan Si. I really hope I'm pronouncing that right. Thich Khan Si, there's a picture of him setting himself on fire in Saigon in 1963 in protest of the oppression of Buddhism by the presidential administration of Vietnam at the time. And this picture, you guys, became kind of the 1963 equivalent of viral. It was everywhere. It was seen all around the world, picked up by television stations everywhere. And it actually helped persuade President, at the time, John F. Kennedy, to finally withdraw support of the Vietnamese regime. When I was re-listening to this album to prepare for this review, I remember I was kind of having a slow day, just kind of like a blah day, you know what I mean? That's when Old Faithful comes to the rescue, like a giant cup of coffee. After one minute listening to this album, I am 16 and I'm banging my head again. My brain fluid is not as stable as it was back in 1993. Let me be clear, I had never heard of this band before seeing them in July 93 at Lollapalooza, and I was never the same after. So the album kicks off with Bomb Track, one of many protest songs that will have you looking for a place to mosh.
The music was composed by bassist Tim Comerford and lyrics by De La Rocha. Zach's aggressive lyrics, burn, burn, yes, you're gonna burn, are in reference to landlords, power-hungry people, and the suits. Yeah, these guys open right up with, hi, we're angry. <laughs> if we can focus, though, on the music for a second, the riff in this song, it's just it's just spectacular. The, the Fender precision bass just bleeds into your ears. Zach's lyrics are, they're outstanding. And... Not only that, but listen to the way he delivers them, pausing in certain parts of each sentence, only to finish and catch up as the beat changes or turns over. So to gain full appreciation of this song, guys, read Zach's lyrics as you listen to the track. You'll, you'll see what I mean. So the madness continues on track two with Killing in the Name. I would argue this is the album's best, but that might be just too difficult to argue. This is why uh, this album is among my top 50 in my entire collection. But seriously, this song is shocking. This song is just... Ah! Killing in the name just fries you. The song contains the F word 17 times and was their first released single, believe it or not. That, that boggles my mind. But now that I remember, radio stations would just bleep the F word softly so your listening experience wasn't terribly damaged, although it never really was the same. 
Hearing Zach say, now you do what they told you over and over and over again will make you guys fall in line quickly and become part of the Kool-Aid drinkers chanting those words over and over and over again. I know it was for me. This is where we first get to hear Morello's record-scratching sound that he makes on his Fender electric guitar, something that I don't really recall hearing anyone do before him. If anyone did, please email me at gpotters at albumreview.net because I'd like to know and I'd like to check that out. This song, Killing in the Name, it's just beyond special. The story goes that Tom Morello was in the middle of teaching a guitar lesson. He was teaching his student how to play in a drop D tuning, which essentially is, it's when you tune your fattest string, the E string, down to a D tuning. And he accidentally played this riff. And so Morello paused the lesson so he could go into another room and record it to play for his bandmates at the next practice. The lyrics were later written in inspiration of the Rodney King beating in L.A., Um, by the police in 1991. As everyone who was living then knows that that one evening was the buildup and later led to the explosion of anger by the African-American community in LA as four police officers were acquitted of clearly beating King for 15 straight minutes. It was caught on video, which very quickly led to massive LA riots in April of 1992. Track three may be better than one and two. And as a bass player, I love Tim Comerford's opening bass in the song, Take the Power Back, and how it drops into that beat. It's just addictive. Bassist Tim Comerford just electrocutes you with his instrument. He just electrocutes you. I wanted to sound exactly like Tim when I heard his bass, and I did everything I could with my Fender Precision. Well, it was a it was a knockoff. It was it was a Siwa, but you know you get the point. It looked like one. Hey, I was 12. Okay, 
I, I didn't. I, my money was from mowing lawns. All right. Hey, get off my back. All right. All right. So with my Siwa, I worked every day to, to sound like this guy. Him and Getty Lee, but I could get a little bit closer to Tim Comifer than I could to Getty. All honor to his name. And I really worked hard to sound like him playing through my cheap buzzing crate amplifier. I wish I could show you a picture. This track has elements of funk mixed in with it. The, the metal and rap are there and perhaps some blues with Morello's guitar, which again gives you, this, gives you the sense of his range. When you hear Tom Morello speak like De La Rocha, he's also really articulate and, are, and intelligent and very passionate about his beliefs. And believe me, he'll throw blows to support them. Many people don't know, Tom is actually a graduate of Harvard, and before his professional music career, he worked for California Senator Alan Cranston, which is not a job one can get if they're that typical stoner in the high school parking lot. So Tom and Zach are pretty sharp guys. If you don't believe me, go check out one of their interviews, any one of their interviews. They're articulate, well-spoken, intelligent guys. So just... Hearing these messages from them, because of that very reason, I just, I took it a little bit more seriously. They didn't, it just didn't feel like a, much, a bunch of annoying noise to me. Bullet in the Head follows the album's trend. Another strong track that is a mix of rap, rock, funk, you know, the rage formula. The song's meaning is not about going around shooting people. No, quite the contrary. Many who hear their lyrics may think they're promoting violence. Some may take it that way, but it's really more of an invitation to wake up. Also, hence the song name on the album. an encouragement. It's a recommendation to people not to blindly accept all those around you. De La Rocha is saying, quote, the people who walk complacently through life, accepting all that is put in front of them, might as well have bullets in their heads, end quote. They also criticize U.S. television as well, saying it is a, quote, weapon used to pacify those who watch it into the living dead, unquote. De La Rocha also felt that, quote, until people take control of their lives, they are mindless components of the entire machine, end quote. 
The song was written in 1991, originally in reaction to the first Iraq war that year, when Iraq invaded Kuwait and the U.S. went over there to push the Iraqis out. Rage was frustrated that the U.S. media was pinning this war as a U.S. victory and never really mentioning the innocent Iraqi civilians who were killed during the war. Wake Up is another brilliantly written track. Well, you know what I'm going to say here, right? Just, just read these lyrics. Black nationalism, he may be a brave contender for this position, but should he abandon his supposed obedience to the white liberal doctrine of nonviolence and embrace black nationalism through counterintelligence, it should be possible to pinpoint potential troublemakers and neutralize them 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 and neutralize them. <laughs> Pretty heavy. Then Zach just yells, wake up about 16,000 times as the main riff kicks back in. the quote from the song I just I just read was taken from an actual FBI document written by then director J. Edgar Hoover to his counterparts suggesting how the FBI should target people who are what what he noted as quote a part of the movement fighting against the suppression of black nationalists end quote the song then ends with how long not long because what you reap is what you sow which Martin Luther King Jr. said during his speech at the Selma to Montgomery, Alabama march in 1965. King was quoting a Bible verse, Galatians 6-7. 
Years later, in 2007, during a performance at Rock the Bells in New York City, Zack De La Rocha spoke to the crowd, addressing the band's overall message and the meaning behind the song Wake Up. He also described the band's disdain for the presidential administration and their view on the then second Iraq war that was going on. He said, quote, this system has become so brutal and vicious and cruel that it needs to start wars and profit from the destruction around the world in order to survive as a world power. And we refuse not to stand up. We refuse to back down from the position, not only for the poor kids who are being left out in the desert to die, but for the Iraqi youth, the Iraqi people, their families and their friends, and their youth who are standing up and resisting the U.S. occupation every day. And if we truly want to end this miserable war, we have to stand up with the same force that the Iraqi youth are standing up with every day and bring these bleepers to their knees. Wake up. Heavy stuff. Really heavy stuff. Who? was writing songs like this in 1992 i don't know i i was doing a little research the other day and i did find some lyrics from a very very popular song that was out roughly around the same time as this album and i'll just read some of those to you this song actually made it really high on the pop charts that year in 92 so a lot of people were attracted to this long as you know that i could have had any man i want baby that's actual and factual but still i chose you to be with me and worked on me, so you better not flake it up. Oh. Hmm. There's an example. Rage's debut album broke in the UK first before the US, primarily because it was easier due to the size of the UK, obviously. Radio stations were, you know, just national instead of regional like in the US. Uh, Rolling Stone magazine would later list it as number 24 on the 100 greatest metal albums of all time. And after killing it on the Lollapalooza tour in 1993, Rage Against the Machine's first album would go on to reach triple platinum status which meant it sold at least 3 million copies in the U.S., 900,000 in the U.K., and over 300,000 in other parts of the world. Each country has its different certification thresholds. So 3 million is a ton, right? So that inspired me to investigate how the RIAA, or the Recording Industry Association of America, certifies sales and downloads in today's music world. Obviously, the landscape is totally different today. But in most countries, going gold or platinum It no longer is specific to how many physical copies an album sells, obviously. Starting in 2004, the RIAA began recognizing digital downloads, including digital downloads from ringtones, believe it or not. Music that's streamed from Apple, Spotify, and other major streaming services are also now included. And then starting in 2014, just in the U.S. and Germany, video streams from platforms like YouTube, with you know 100 streams essentially began to count as one download. So 100 streams equaled one download. 
I've got no idea how they chose those numbers, but but they did. So I just I still think this is weird, vague, and quite frankly unfortunate. But what can we do, right? All right, moving on. I don't want to be a whiner. I do that too much. Despite rumors of a breakup for several years, Rage Against the Machine did not release their second album, Evil Empire, until 1996, four years later, which was an eternity for bands back then. Fast forwarding to October of 2000, Zach De La Rocha announced he was leaving the band. He said primarily because, quote, our decision-making process has completely failed and has undermined our artistic and political ideal, end quote. The other band members would later admit they were a bit emotionally immature at the time of their breakup and fought many times over silly decisions like what color to market their t-shirts in. The band, however, never felt that these arguments affected their music. The band's third album, Battle of Los Angeles, released in 1999, would also debut at number one, which I still believe all stem from the momentum of their first album I'm reviewing here. Despite all their success, Rage never wanted to be characterized as a funk metal band. That pissed them off. They preferred not to be tied to a genre and to be taken seriously as a revolutionary music group with a political message, which was essentially not to believe everything you hear and that corruption and misuse of power are everywhere. The band had been on and off for several years since, getting back together to play a show, then going on another hiatus, back and forth, back and forth. In fact, Rage Against the Machine was scheduled to play the Boston Calling Music Festival. They were the headliners, actually, in May of 2022, but they pulled out in January, a few months before, for reasons not disclosed. So Metallica ended up headlining in uh, Rage Against the Machine's place, and... Um, Interesting fact, too, Nine Inch Nails ended up replacing Foo Fighters as the other co-headliner after the tragic death of Foo Fighters drummer Taylor Hawkins. May he rest in peace. Either way, their first album not only catapulted their career, but it also propelled this genre and spawned new groups. That's really the statement I'm trying to make today. I would argue many of the bands linked to this genre of like new metal that was born in the late 90s came from Rage Against the Machine. And whether you agree with their political message or not, you cannot argue with the power of their music. Go back and watch their first live performance on YouTube and watch the beginning of what soon would become a masterpiece and a game changer in the music world forever. I feel like this is a staple album, meaning like Frampton Comes Alive in the 1970s. Everyone had a copy, right? Hell, didn't they give them out at McDonald's when you ordered a Big Mac or when you ordered a Slurpee at 7-Eleven? If you haven't heard Rage Against the Machine's debut album, oh, you're in for a treat. Put your helmet on.
Thank you again for listening to the albumreview.net podcast. I hope you enjoyed this review of Rage Against the Machines debut self-titled album. And remember, if you're interested in any of the albums I've discussed in this episode or previous episodes, go to albumreview.net and pick up a copy of your own. Listen to all my podcast album reviews at albumreview.net by clicking on the podcast tab. Duh. They can also be heard wherever podcasts are available. Please follow the show on your preferred platform so you can get regular updates on new episodes. Also, if you guys would be so kind as to pop a quick review or rate the podcast, that helps move the needle and get the word out there. I do want to hear from you guys. I say this, I say this every week. Please email me your feedback, album review requests, and any questions you may have to gpotters at albumreview.net. That's G-P-O-T-T-E-R-S at albumreview.net. Stay tuned for updates on Instagram and Facebook. You can find me at albumreview.net. Join the mailing list, which is on the homepage of my website, and just keep refreshing your podcast feed. Just read and listen. All right, thanks again, guys. Keep listening, keep reading, and keep learning. Seacrest, out. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why I did that. I don't know. Whatever. Take a trip down by the highway 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 Take a trip down by the highway